This is Faith and Letters. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. multi-part biographies, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, and Reinventing Bach. The Life You Save May Be Your Own focuses on the lives of and relationships between four mid-20th century Catholic writers who played a big role in Paul's spiritual formation, Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day, Flannery O'Connor, and Walker Percy. Reinventing Bach tells the story of the life and music of the famed composer through the particular ways in which his music's been interpreted and recorded by well-known musicians of the 20th century, including, but not limited to, Leopold Stokowski, Albert Schweitzer, Yo-Yo Ma, Pablo Casals, and Glenn Gould. I spoke with Paul about the process of writing biography, the spiritual aspect of Bach's music, as well as his time as an editor at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Paul, I'd like to begin just setting the stage for folks, and also because it's interesting to me, I think it'll be an interesting angle for folks, and just uh, sort of setting the stage by talking about the fact that you've been on both sides of the desk, as it were. You've worked as an editor, and you're also someone who has published multiple books. And so at least you know, from the outside in, as I imagine what that might be like. Um, it seems like that would give you a, a unique perspective. Would you be willing to talk? And just to give context, you were for, I think, well, well over a decade, maybe maybe closer to 20 years, you worked with Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux? It was an extraordinary experience. So uh, I went to Fordham University in New York and had an outstanding teacher of writing there, Verlin Klinkenborg who's um, one of the great writers about the West. Uh, he wrote many, many pieces for the New York Times and a couple of books. And he's got a book about the teaching of writing published by Pantheon. That was my freshman writing teacher. I was lucky to get in his class. And then um, after a kind of unhappy year after college that figures into the book I'm writing now, I wound up in the Columbia MFA program kind of crawled in through the back door, got an MFA in fiction. After that, haven't written a word of fiction really since 1991. But that was true at the time. A lot of the classmates of mine, we, we all became nonfiction writers, or many of us. Stephen Dubner, the author of Freakonomics, Tom Beller, a short story writer, Nancy Sales, who writes for Vanity Fair, Scott Smith, who wrote a couple of strong novels that were adapted for films. Uh, Philip Gurevich, who wrote uh, um, that very bracing book about Rwanda that he, he's now completing a sequel to. So we were all fiction candidates who wound up working in nonfiction. I then um, worked as a freelance writer while having copy editing jobs at Publishers Weekly, Red Book, and couple of other places. The freelance work broke down into two areas. And one was for the New Republic about religion. And it was an incredible experience to work with Andrew Sullivan, who was editing the magazine at that time. Catholic, brilliant, uh, contrarian. But it was also a way of um, making me realize that I am not a person of instantaneous strong opinions like Andrew Sullivan is. I mean, he, he, he's a geni genius of having an opinion on everything. And in that world, the currency is your strong opinions. So I was doing good work for the New Republic, but without a sense that it was my work really. Meanwhile, I wrote long feature articles for Lingua Franca, the magazine about academe that was around in the 90s. And it was a really beautiful uh, chance to learn by writing 6,000 word magazine profiles 
even though I was young and relatively inexperienced. Instead of writing captions at New York Magazine, you know, I got to really learn how to do it kind of on the job with the brilliant editor, Alexander Starr, who's now an editor at Farrah Strauss and Giroux. I learned of an opening at FSG through Publishers Weekly, um, wrote to the top editor who was hiring, saying with a straight face that I owned 40 FSG books, which, you know, I didn't own much else at that time. <laughs> I was a poor graduate student. So I got the job and it, it was a beautifully formative experience um, to see how books are made, to be in a place where literature is um, the coin of the realm and its value is unquestioned. But especially, and it took my colleague, Ethan Nazowski, who's now the head of Grey Wolf Press, to point this out to me. FSG is a place where extraordinary writers are walking in the door all the time, but they're just bursting with new work that they want to make. All the MFA program anxieties about am I a writer or do I like to write don't really apply at that particular publishing house. You know, Joseph Brodsky's practically dead of cancer and he's calling to get another 40 page essay that he's written into the book that's already in page proofs. Uh, and on, it doesn't have to be people at that level. So the, 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 to be at the elbow of these people for whom writing is a life force was so powerful. And then it was a force that I was able to kind of ride into my own life as a writer. On some level, I said, I could do this and I want to do it. And then on another level, the, the incredible strong feeling for literature that just filled the place and still does, um, carried me over the line from reader to writer, I guess. So then when I was writing my first book, which is quite long at night, and people would ask me, how, how did you do this long book when you had a full-time job? And it wasn't easy, but the fact that I could kind of um, go to the well of FSG every day where literature is still the stuff of life and then take that home into my own work helped the book go. You know, as opposed to people who have to say work at a job where literature is not respected or that that where the job is itself enervating. So I was working incredibly hard, but just it was like floating on this high tide of literature, you know, for years on end. Uh, I can't say enough um, good things about the experience. And then the fact that the book had to do with um, people who were published by that firm kind of got a um, conversation going between my life as a writer and my life as an editor in ways that's, that's still going on. I read a really brief little piece that you wrote in the American Spectator about the actual experience of the, the meeting that you had with your boss at the time after you had submitted the proposal. Hey, I want to write this book about four uh, mid 20th century Catholic writers and the connections between them. And yeah, it's a sweet little piece. You, you talk about how he's very um, encouraging. He also tells you to, to go deeper. And then um, you eventually write the book and get it published uh, to general acclaim. I think to sort of conclude my, my meandering intro thought there, I think I'm just in general terms curious about how that experience when I say being on the other side of the desk or the transom, like the experience of really the vulnerability of putting yourself out there, putting your work out there. And then, you know, presumably not only in the initial meeting there, but as you would start to submit drafts, how's that experience as a writer of getting feedback, essentially writ large, you know, getting feedback from other people about your work or critique, how has that informed the way in which you couch the feedback, you know, formal or informal that you've subsequently given over the decades to other writers uh, and vice versa. It, it has profoundly and in ways that it's very easy for me to tease out from the anecdote that you just related. So 
for a few years, the American Scholar was being edited by Ann Fadiman, who was an FSG author, and there was some space about writers and their relationship to editors or something that prompted this piece. And the editor, Jonathan Galassi, who was you know, the person I worked for, but was also the, the editor of my book, I handed in the proposal. It circulated around the house. Other publishers were interested, which then gave FSG a kind of free hand to to bid on it themselves without looking like it, we were just taking care of one of their own. You know, they wanted to publish the book, but they didn't want it to be an inside job in a way that seemed unfair. So one, once other publishers were interested, then they um, expressed their interest. And then he stuck this post-it onto the proposal just saying, go deeper. And I guess the experience of writing books ever since has been my attempt to do that. I think of narrative nonfiction as a form with you know, so many qualities, um, vividness, uh, sh shape, absorption, characters, setting, metaphor, local and extended. But the experience of depth is, is what I'm after and what I think literature has in a distinctive way that's elusive in some other forms. And when you, t when you talk about depth, I found myself wondering if that is meaningfully distinct from, from style. I know that I have a, a conception of, and often the term literary is, is in there somewhere, but literary writing, or just good writing in general, it, it has a distinct and attractive style. And I, I think your work is very textured, very layered, very stylized in some ways. Um, it's a, it's a very distinctive voice, but it's, I wondered if you were talking about something again, that's distinct from that. So could you, could you try maybe to, to tease out for us a, a, a bit more about what, what you are referring to when you say that sort of the, the experience of depth is central to the literary experience. What is depth? For sure. And so before I do so, let me just say that I haven't forgotten the, the thread of the previous question, which is how, how this has then led me to respond to the work of other writers in a certain way, which it most definitely has. Yes, terms like style and depth are hard to define. Uh, Hew out a style, it is by style we are saved. That's Henry James. And some people will say there's no deeper writer than James. I think of style as having um, to do with the, the play of language on the level of sentences or passages Whereas depth, it partly has to do with con with devising a structure that is its own structure. And there's a lot of astonishing journalism that, for all its virtues, is essentially poured into existing structures. There's a certain shape of a kind of polemical article or magazine profile that um, many writers, you know, to our great benefit, kind of work within those forms. So. In my books, I've tried to make shapes that are that are that correspond somehow with the material and that aren't shapes that exist anywhere else. And that do have you use the word layers. There's a the layer of what's happening. There's a layer that has to do with the, the way language and certain metaphors or patterns are extended from one um, section of the book to the next. There's the sense of space where you disappear into narrative time or into the space of the book and leave the space um, of your room or of the airplane where you're reading. And that's another thing that you know many magazines, um, for all their virtues, you, you kind of you stay in the space of the page with its advertising on one side or whatever. And then there's a sense of, um, depth as a kind of permanence that uh, a book that covers 70 years, but then um, points into the future, and then remains substantially itself, let's say 20 years later in the way that my first book is now 20 years old. Uh, and just depth, almost, I'm not sure if it was Flannery O'Connor or Dorothy Day, I suspect it was the latter who just said, I just went at those things like, 
I went at it as as thoroughly as I could and in as many ways and tried to get to the bottom of things. So depth in that sense of like getting to the bottom of it. I have a close friend who read both my books in early drafts and there aren't too many readers I have at that stage. And he said about the Bach book, his name is Lawrence Joseph. He's a poet, outstanding poet. And he said, look on some level with your Bach book, you were, you were trying to account for what music is. What is music? And that's the level of depth that grandiose as it seems is what I mean when I say the experience of depth, that it's presumptuous to say in a, at the, at my particular place in the history of music, I'm going to write a book that somehow touches bottom on what music is, but, but to at least be aware of that level of depth and point your work toward it, um, is what I, what I mean. Is that a use, useful way of, um, it is. Thank you. So then when I think about how to, um, work with writers, First of all, real writing represents like the spending of the of the writer's best self. Days you spent inside or away from your family, uh, all the concentrated work that goes into a book that might be read in the right way, you know, just on one plane flight. In other words, a 300 page book, you could spend four or five years writing it and then someone starts it in the lobby in New York, it ends it in Los Angeles. That that kind of concentrated effort, um, putting years of your life into something that can be consumed in the right way pretty quickly. If, you, if you're aware of that, which I was aware of through the publishing process, first of all, you're very kind of gentle and respectful of the writer. I always try to begin by saying what the work is, and I try to teach this to students at Georgetown as well. First of all, just try to say what it is. Here's what, here's what you were doing in a few sentences on that, instead of just leaping right in with criticism. And then the nature of the criticism, a lot of it can be pretty technical, but I, as a writer know that on some level, a book is almost like a living thing that, that the writer lives with and that, that can lose life you can lose books, you know? And so at the base level, the constructive criticism has to do with the life of the book and not just with technical stuff. And then this is something I really learned from Jonathan Galassi, and this winds back to your original um, point. I try to figure out what the writer really needs to know. I don't try to impress the writer with how much I know or how well I read the book, or how many marginal notes I made to show that I'm earning my pay. What is it that the writer really needs to know? So he told me what I needed to know, go deeper. Two words. You know, he's the one of the most renowned editors in the business, but his succinct words told me what I needed to know at that moment. And so I keep that in mind and try to figure out what the writer needs to know and not, um, offer you know, stock stuff or, or um, tr try to impress. That's wonderful. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. That idea of gentleness as somebody who's gotten feedback, there is you're hungry for this technical stuff on the, on the one level, is this working? How can I, how can I oil the machinery better? But you're also so vulnerable in that space. Um, Could I tell a story in that connection? Yeah, please. Yeah. I, I worked with Tom Wolfe on A Man in Full, mm. and he'd written about the first half of the book, and then the second half was in relatively rough form, and he, he, he was trained as a journalist, so he thrived on deadlines. So he had to complete the book with a very hard deadline of something like October 1st so we could get it into stores for Christmas. I think it was probably September 1st. So my job was to coordinate the process to kind of keep him on track, which was a huge effort involving all sorts of people at all levels of the company and printers and messengers and everything else. But at the same time, 
Tom Wolfe, famous writer, huge advances, all the world waiting for the sequel to The Bonfire of the Vanities. He really wanted to know whether it was any good. Hmm. <laughs> he was so, and the fact that I knew his work well from my, from my other life, you know, as one of his fans, it was to me amazing that that the 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 writer who was a hero of my boyhood was as vulnerable at book 12 as he as he must have been the first time really wanting to know whether what he was doing was onto something and that i was the person who had to kind of figure that out and so i figure if tom wolf after all that he'd achieved is vulnerable like that that's kind of a reminder of the basic vulnerability of of the writer with the unfinished, unpublished text. Yeah, wow. Hmm. Well, I want to talk about your I want to talk about your books a little bit. So let's pivot to that. And let's do it by way of just uh, you know, sort of talking about the form, because you are, at least in terms of your two big books that you've published, The Life You Save May Be Your Own and Reinventing Bach, a biographer. I think, you know, in the, in the general consciousness, there's the idea of novelists, the great, the, I could write the great American novel someday, or I'll write my memoir. I think it's probably a significantly smaller chunk of people who are like, I'm going to write a biography someday. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to, uh, you know, biography? And maybe it's by way of, of talking about the kernel of that first book, but I think to just sort of give a little texture, it, it seems like a humbling enterprise. We've talked a little bit here, uh, you know, sort of touched on just how much effort goes into writing a book. And in, in biography, you're spending, you know, years, hundreds or thousands of hours, years figuratively of your life, uh, creating work that is in some way about someone else. So it's a sort of, it's a sort of, humble, I would imagine it's a humble or humbling uh, sort of enterprise in that way. What brought you to biography specifically as your form? I'm glad you asked. I haven't thought about it in a while, and now I'm finishing a third book that should have me asking some of the same questions. Yes, it's biography. Um, some, sometimes I think of it as almost as narrative criticism or as imaginative criticism, which is a term that Thomas Merton used. The most basic term is group portraiture. So I've never written a full biography of one person. And I get to know the sources pretty well, but my books are rooted more in um, already available books and interviews and materials rather than in um, sitting with the relatives and so forth. There's various reasons for that. A lot of the relatives were dead. There'd been outstanding resources already existing, two biographies of Walker Percy, et cetera. So a lot of my work is pattern making, trying to find the pattern within these lives that are somehow joined together. So the first book, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, you know, I typically describe it as a group portrait of four American Catholic writers. Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, Walker Percy, and Flannery O'Connor. And naming them that way is in chronological order of their ages. But if you were to name them in terms of fame, it would probably be Thomas Merton, Walker Percy, Flannery O'Connor, and Dorothy Day. So my, my whole experience of Catholicism had to do with a serial monogamous encounter with each of those four writers. Flannery O'Connor, then through the introduction to the complete stories by Robert Giroux, who was O'Connor's editor, but was also Merton's editor, he compared the two. So no sooner had I met O'Connor than I learned of Thomas Merton, then I fell hard for Merton for a while. Through the work about them, encountered these references here, there, and everywhere to Walker Percy, and then bought the moviegoer, didn't really get it. Wound up buying a collected writings of Dorothy Day, a beautiful edition, 
edited by Robert Ellsberg in a church book sale in Morningside Heights near Columbia University, and wound up spending one Lent um, serving soup at the Catholic Worker on Sundays, no, Saturdays rather. So these four Catholic writers came into view, and I kept seeing connections among them. Then I started to work at FSG, and their books were on the shelves. Three of them were published by the firm, so I could just take down their books and get to know them better than I did. And Robert Giroux was still coming into the office once a week, and I would seek him out and ask him about these writers who, whose work had meant so much to me. And I began to wish for some way to see them all together, and I kept looking for that book, and it didn't exist. Meanwhile, FSG had published a couple of um, really books that were suggestive for the form of group portraiture. One was The Metaphysical Club by Louis Menand, which is a kind of braided book about um, how various great Americans responded to the calamity of the Civil War through um, ideas, social movements, and such like. Uh, a Story of Ideas in America is the subtitle. Uh, then I was working with David Haydu on his um, really outstanding book about the early years of Bob Dylan uh, in the village, which was a group portrait of Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, her sister Mimi Baez, and Mimi's husband, the novelist and folk singer Richard Farina. So those books and working on them gave me a nudge in the direction of group portraiture. And I then kind of to follow that nudge and decided to try my own uh, group portrait of these four figures. And behind it all, weirdly enough, was the Who record, Quadrophenia, <laughs> you know, which was this four different views of the same experience. <laughs> and it was a little bit like my Catholic Quadrophenia that I was going to write. Then I got the book contract in the way that I've already described to you. But then, already having the contract, I then had to find the form for the book. And I knew in some respects, I thought, this it's a story of a pilgrimage. And then I realized I didn't really know what a pilgrimage was. And that, so then the next stage of the writing, and I can pause here, was, was all about like some quarrying to figure out what a pilgrimage is. I think the other general question about biography and I'm afraid of asking an inane version of this, but you know, has something to do with the research because it seems, again, as someone who hasn't done it, like there would be an almost for anybody relatively well known. And I mean, some of the people you're writing about, especially once we get to, we'll pivot to Bach here in a minute. But somebody like Bach, there's so much that's been written about him. Um, and then some people, maybe sort of relative to Bach, there's also, they've left behind tons of written work, somebody like Merton. Um, so I, I don't want to ask just some basic question like, well, how did you just, how did you do your research? I'm sure on some basic level, you just read a lot of stuff <laughs> and thought a lot about it. But in terms of what you kind of ended your last answer with there, in terms of finally having to, at some point, sit down and actually organize whatever material you did have, um, particularly that you were doing what seems like this somehow extra, you know, extra difficult step of trying to kind of weave together four different people's stories. Um, did you try to tackle that on your own or did you, did you have, did you have help at that stage in terms of sort of whiteboarding that or thinking through all your notes with someone else? Or did you just take a whack at that? And, and how did you, how did you sort of like go about, banging out that first draft and, and finding your way towards some kind of organizing principle. Not to scamp the really valuable insight of Jonathan Galassi, but he, he um, part of his approach is to um, be an encourager while the writer finds his or her way and not to lean on, the, to, to apply the pressure and s suggest that because it's taking a long time, you're, you're screwing up. With that book, I initially tried to start it too late when the four writers were all in full flower after the war. 
all except Percy, in fact. Then I realized it didn't really work, so I had to go back to the, how the three of them had come to Catholicism in the first place in the first half of the 20th century. And because Dorothy Day was converted in 1927, Thomas Merton in 1936, Walker Percy in 1946. Then I had to figure out how, how could I tell their stories and keep O'Connor in the story when she wasn't even born until 25. So I had to do a kind of fake out um, to blend her story in with the others through some sleight of hand. I learned some of that from Philip Garevich, who had told me a couple of tricks that he'd used in his Rwanda book. He doesn't even know this, but, um, and so figuring out that the story would be essentially chronological and that it would kind of move from one point of view to the other, um, those were two of the big uh, decisions. It's going to move chronologically and we're not going to have like 60 pages in a row of Walker Percy. It's going to rotate among them. And then, and that became, that practical decision became a method where you then look for connections and um, counterpoint and parallels and what are people doing at the same time? Well, it turns out they read, read the same book in this moment. At the same time, the relative strict strictness of chronology means the book is manageable. Okay, I'm in 1945. I put away the books that have to do with the 30s. I take out the books that have to do with the 40s. I clear my head and my desk of everything that's not at that span of time. So the chronology makes a lot of decisions for you and also takes care of a lot of the practical questions of how to manage so much material. For that book, just a lot of secondhand books and biographies. I have many cardboard boxes of um, weird old Catholic books and stuff that referred to them that are probably impossible to find now, but they were necessary for a couple of pieces of the puzzle. Uh, and it's really important in this kind of writing that I think you're not making a resource, you're making a work of art. It's important for all the vital aspects of their life to be included, but sometimes you read a book and then you it winds up being one or two sentences in your own book. You, you don't put stuff in just because, because you put in the effort. So a lot of, a lot of that, um, once you know that, that you're just looking for the perfect insider line, um, your relationship to all that material becomes much more forgiving because you, because you don't feel any obligation to, um, to include more than you need. Side note, there's a, there's a, there's one very well-known bookstore in Portland called Powell's, which a lot of people have heard of, even who don't live here. There's a very obscure bookstore here called Mother Foucault Books, <laughs> and I found a copy recently of a of a, I think, definitely lesser-known Merton book called, and I'm not even entirely sure how to pronounce it, Waters of Siloa or Waters of Silo. It's like his. It's essentially like his version. It's his history of his own order that he wrote. It's a cool, it was a weird little paperback edition with like an angel on the cover. I bought it, gave it to my buddy. Yeah, he was told by the head of the monastery to write some of these books. It was an assignment and it wouldn't be known to the world except for the fact that Seventh Story Mountain had just sold um, one million copies. Suddenly, relatively obscure books on Trappist topics uh, gained larger audiences and got the kind of mass market treatment that you're describing. Some of them are really tacky and um, gothic type and uh, a man's search for God like no other. <laughs> uh, and occasionally that stuff finds its way into the book because it's a good reminder that the past really is the past and they did things differently back there. Well, I feel like all this is just a, a great setup to also spend some time talking about your book on Bach. Uh, and also Bach the man and Bach the believer and his his art, his music as religious art. So let me just ask you at the beginning, 
as somebody who who uh, has more does not have. Let me just put it this way. Let me ask you as somebody who does not have a particularly strong sort of familial inheritance in the form of of classical music from my parents, uh, or you know uh, the emotional connection that I think really comes through in your book um, with classical music. How did you come to Bach? Was Bach like like Paul Simon's Graceland was like the music that was on in my house and on road trips as a kid? Did you come to Bach through your parents playing it around the house? Um, how, how did you sort of come to Bach or did you come to Bach on your own later in life? In college and not, my family is a musical family. We all took lessons and the stereo was always on. It was still crazy after all these years rather than Graceland. <laughs> yes. Because I'm a little bit older than you are, but uh, I played saxophone and then electric guitar and acoustic guitar and I was a folk musician in the village a little bit during college but the way I wrote for years was to pull all-nighters on college papers and graduate school and my companion on all those all-nighters was WKCR the Columbia University radio station which was known for three things really phenomenally knowledgeable um disc jockeys playing the whole history of jazz, but explaining the stuff. These birthday broadcasts where they would do a Coltrane or Monk for 24 hours straight. And I remember really distinctly like writing a paper on Matthew Arnold while listening to the Clifford Brown birthday broadcast for 12 hours straight. And the music was just endless. It was an incredible experience. And the third thing was that KCR would, and still does, about a week of Bach over Christmas every year. So my jazz station then suddenly switched over to classical in a deep way. And I fell so hard for the music, I just loved it. And then I had this experience of depth. You know, it would have taken me years to accumulate the recordings that they played over a week. But they it just kept going, it was endless. And I was in heaven, you know, for the entire time. So I just had to do something with that experience. The experience of coming to Bach through recordings, not through being a classical musician, not through the Lutheran culture, just through the radio. And the music came first, and then I needed to learn all about it. And I just, it was out of desire, just wanting to know more. I thought about Bach as a Christian artist, and in some respects, the book is a kind of Protestant counterpoint to the Catholic book, a great Protestant artist whose work has utter religious authenticity, but also communicates with full power to someone who doesn't give a hoot about religion. Um, if I thought about the audacity of the project, I wouldn't um, have done it, maybe. But I don't know German. I hadn't been to Germany, uh, but the number of publications on English by well-known figures on Bach is astonishing. So I just dove in and this idea that Bach's music was transformed in the age of recordings came out of some writings of one of the people whose work on Bach is best known, Glenn Gould, a famous pianist who then quit the recording, quit live performance for the recording studio in 1964. You know, 65 right before the Beatles. So his writing was almost a metaphysic about how um, live music and recordings are related. So that became a kind of skeleton key that unlocked this whole tradition. This book is like, actually, now that I think about it, it's even more clear to me how it's, it's sort of the progression in your appetite for degree of difficulty, because the first book is a is a, a four-way portraiture this book on the surface if somebody doesn't actually read it they're like oh it's a book about Bach so it's got it does have this organizing figure uh and it's and it's also about his music but you know everything is subservient to or somehow related to Bach but then it's also simultaneously about recording technology <laughs> and there's another group portrait of uh, four different uh famous musicians, well-known musicians who, you know, throughout a long period, 
long period of time, basically 20th century, have recorded his music um, on different instruments. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of there's a lot of material, a lot of grist for the mill. Um, it feels like Bach is the only person who could have been nominated. If this was a movie, he's the only he's the only person who'd be up for best actor. But there's four people who are up for best supporting actor, and I found myself wondering because for whatever reason, I got. I mean, I definitely got feelings and flavors and and sort of reactions to the four writers in the life you save may be your own. But I, I, for whatever reason, I felt like these folks. Obviously, Gould is very idiosyncratic for anybody who reads the book or who knows about him. But there, for some reason, I just I reacted to them a little bit more and was kind of like, oh, I'm more attracted to this person. I want. I'm probably done spending time with this person. Who like by the time you'd written this book, like who 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 had whose company. Um, had you enjoyed spending the most time in because they seem they're very different uh men these four supporting musicians definitely it was a different experience than writing about the four catholic uh, writers your account of the complexity of the book you know that i was very aware of that at a certain point i was trying to do um in some ways it has the structure of a bach suite which is um six parts and then a seventh that's repeated and the idea of counterpoint informs the structure that it's going to be in kind of Bach's music in counterpoint with the story of his life and counterpoint with the story of recordings i didn't conceive of it that clearly i figured that out what i knew i wanted was a structure that had um, a resemblance to Bach's own work which somebody said is at once the simplest and the most complex that he has a a clear figure or melody that's totally unforgettable in like um five notes and then he just lets it rip so that you get a latticed complexity that is but it but is rarely difficult for its own sake it's usually pleasing and so my goal was to write a book that had textural complexity of Bach, but was also just thoroughly enjoyable to read the way his music is thoroughly enjoyable to listen to. And I did think a lot about that. Um, The key was this notion of invention, which is a term that Bach himself used. He wrote the two and three part inventions. And an invention for Bach was a melody that was developed just enough on paper generally to suggest further possibilities for the other musician to carry it forward. The first case of this was the other musician was his son. He wrote the two-part inventions as a kind of instruction book for one of his sons who was a musician, showing him how to compose, but also giving him little works that he could then develop and elaborate as a composer. The thing is about the size of a, um, moleskin notebook i drove up to the yale library one day and parked my car in the metered spot my wife and kids kicked a soccer ball on one of the quads and i went into the library and turned the pages of this thing it was an incredible experience to turn the page of the little book where bach worked out the inventions that were then um, that i was then trying to carry forward his notion of invention in, in a long book. Uh, but back to your question about the characters, um, they were more remote because I'm not a classical music person. Uh, they're, sometimes their stories were interesting precisely because I didn't know a lot about them. So like, I don't find Stokowski a really appealing person. He's imperious, arrogant, um, nobody's right but him. He like, you know, walks the earth like a god. Um, but, but his story was fascinating to tell because I was kind of discovering it as I was telling it. Um, I'm surprised that we don't know more about Yo-Yo Ma's personal story, given how famous he is in our time. Oh, you know what? I wasn't thinking of him, but he he's a big. I was thinking of Casals, if I'm pronouncing that right, Pablo, as as kind of the the cellist you spend the most time with, but there is a, a fair bit about Yo-Yo Ma in the book. Yeah. So it's Schweitzer in the first chapter, Casales in the second, Stokowski in the third, 
with others, of course, along the way. Gould kind of right at the center. Then a lot of German and Jewish musicians after the war who kind of affected a rapprochement between those two cultures by way of Bach. Then some really great um, uh, contemporary musicians. And one of them is Yo-Yo Ma. And Yo-Yo Ma emerged at a time in the history of the music when the recording quality was already really good. So he's kind of done a reverse whammy on the invention of Bach. The musicians that most of the book is about kept readapting Bach's music for new technology. And once the technology kind of plateaued in terms of audio quality, he tries to interpret for new technological venues. Let me do, let me go on TV and do it. Let me um, be able to do a PBS documentary that features Bach. Let me go on to the Muppet Show. Um, let me do a Laserdisc. Uh, not striving for better and better quality so much as to be an, um, an ambassador for Bach through different media. And so the whole narrative of the book, which is the reinvention of Bach through technology, kind of turned inside out at the end. I don't know that I would have loved spending a ton of time with Glenn Gould, the man, but his story uh, was one of my favorite uh, things to write about or to read in the book. I actually think as I say that, that really the, because I'm thinking about this one story you tell about, I think it's the recording of the, his, like one of his famous recordings of the Goldberg variations. But I, I can also then think about this other story you tell about Schweitzer, like a session he had in a church organ loft. And then there's these scenes of, of Casals like at his, on his estate. I think it's like the, your settings are very lush and like uh, sort of ornately detailed. There's, for whatever reason, I want to use the term novelistic, or it, it has the quality of reading a, a really well-reported or well-rendered um, novel. And that's, you know, maybe that's unfair to other biographers, but I feel like you did a wonderful job there. But yeah, Gold was such a, he's, as somebody who is more connected to and more relatively familiar with um, basically pop or rock music and has played in bands and toured and has kind of been more in that world in my own life. There was something of the, something of that, like just rock star about him, uh, in terms of very idiosyncratic and just kind of hold up in a recording studio. He seemed like a, ah, just kind of like a tortured guy in some ways, but just one of many. You're so right about his star quality. I mean, he just had charisma, which is such a mysterious quality. He had it, and it, he was a handsome man when he was young, but it wasn't just about looks. He was brilliant, but it wasn't just about brains. He was an astonishing pianist, but that was a time when there were astonishing pianists around every corner, really, uh, winning contests and so forth. All of these things together, his determination to go his own way and his almost lordly obstinacy about the, his way of doing things as the right way is so striking. And yet because of his fame, it's all really amply documented. I think one of the passages you were referring to, I was able to evoke the sessions where he recorded the first Goldberg variations in 1955 in Columbia's um, studios, which were an old church in Manhattan. Because there, it's what, one of the top 10 best-selling classical records of all time. There's box sets and multiple discs and alternate takes. And because of his fame, it's so chronicled that the material is just sitting there waiting for me to, to make a scene in the way that you described. And as a writer, I look at this and I'm so grateful to the people who write liner notes and so forth, the incredible level of detail they put in there. But I also know that I've got an opportunity they, they didn't have, which is to fit it into a narrative over 50 years. So there's a certain responsibility that I feel like, oh my God, look at this stuff that's sitting right here that all these brilliant people have kind of served up for us, record company producers and packagers and biographers. I've got to really do it justice and kind of put you there in the way that it, you're suggesting I somehow did by drawing on it and structuring the takes and, and 
trying not to have too much extraneous information and kind of just have us at his elbow while he's there with this crazy chair and a glass of water recording the aria last after he did the 32 variations and the guys in the recording studio who run the place are kind of scratching their heads but this kooky artist from canada is 21 and he's right <laughs> yeah much more can be said about all of those characters so much density and texture i want to spend some time you know make some time here before we run out of time uh, to talk about box art as religious art about his music as religious art box music as religious art is central to the book when i when i listen to bach um i hear someone who was obviously a genius and who it's easy for me to to sort of give credence to anyone else's you know acclamation in regards to if someone else says this music is is transcendent i have no i have no qualms with that i do, i do want to ask about um the religious nature of his art as you understand it because of two things so this is to to respectfully sort of problematize what i think comes across to me as, as something that might be more self-evident seem more self-evident to you his work was obviously written much of it for you know explicitly for liturgical settings or for for um for church use and also much of it explicitly includes christian scripture or references christian stories um, and you write openly about the fact that some of it was, was what we would maybe better think of or describe. And he himself would have as well as secular music. So it's not that it's all religious music, but, um, I also, I also felt like, okay, this is probably the world that he's in, um, which is to say that there's such a huge edifice of cultural Christianity in, in, in the time that he's working. And this is how he's making his living. He's getting, he's getting paid. It didn't seem like we had a, a huge body of, of work that had been left behind in terms of personal journals or whatnot to have a ton of interior insight into how he thought about the religious um, or sort of devotional aspect of his music, although much can be implied. I'm struggling to ask the question, which I think is actually good because it's not an entirely clear to me, but something feel, felt a little fuzzy by the time I closed the book. Um, and maybe just in terms of your understanding of what it is about his music that is so overtly religious. And I just want to read you, this is from the very end of the book, and this will help me maybe sort of clarify what it is that I'm asking. Maybe I didn't even write it down. I think you say something to the effect of the religion on which box work or music is based is religious enough and the work is the work itself is self-evidently spiritual or transcendently spiritual. How so? How is it? How is it, it, it? Aside from the fact that it's obviously created by someone to be used in a church setting, can you can you tell me more about how it seemed to you to reflect his spirituality? I'm really glad that you kind of worked your way through the question the way that you did because it's super complicated, and I wouldn't. Uh suggest that I have the answer. In the passage you quoted, what I had in mind was something that I'd, I think, set up a bit earlier, that um, Bach's music is an understatement to say it's widely admired. I don't like the term universally, but listeners of all types are, are not only drawn to Bach, but kind of in a, enthralled to him or in awe to him. And what's striking about that to me is that even in our culture, which is suspicious of religion and rightly so, you very rarely find the argument that religion was just instrumental for Bach, which is made even by art about artists like Michelangelo or Caravaggio. You know, these guys had patrons and that's where the money was. And so they really wanted to paint the body or murder, but they had to do it in Christian form. So that's what they did. And there's something to those arguments. In my fairly wide reading over years writing the book, I almost never encountered that um, religion really didn't matter to Bach. He that he was, or was a somehow an obstacle for him, or something he had to deal with. Even the people who would be inclined to make that argument seemed to grant that Bach was authentically religious. So when I say that um, self-evidently religious, that's 
the basis for that assertion is what I just explained, that there's a kind of widespread recognition that this is a religious artist, that he wa wasn't kidding around, that this stuff really mattered to him, and that that he wasn't just doing it because that was what his culture demanded. Um, so that's important because, as you say, we don't know a lot about Bach's spirituality. He definitely thought that all music was for the glory of God, and he wrote that. And he knew the scriptures really well. Weirdly enough, his personal Bible wound up in the library of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And so now it, I think it's on exhibit in St. Louis, Missouri, Bach's Bible, just the way his two-part inventions are at the Yale Library. <laughs> Strange. Uh, he, he either was so busy or so involved with life that he didn't um, do a lot of introspective writing. A lot of the stuff that we know about him is registries of paper that he bought, beer that he bought, arrangements for instruments, when he would go to a church and kind of test out the organ and then write a report about it or put some new pipes in or something like that. So we have to take the music itself as the best evidence of what religion was to him. So this goes back to this idea of invention that I mentioned a little while earlier. Um, for, for Bach and for people of his time, according to Lawrence Dreyfus, who promoted this idea in a book called Bach and the Patterns of Invention. Invention didn't have the connotations that it has for us of sort of coming up with something new out of whole cloth. It, it had aspects of discovery or, or of making a thing new within what, finding what relationships that already existed and sort of bringing, bringing them to the surface in a new way. And I, I would only in conversation here, so I, I hope I can get this right, but there's a very strong sense in Bach's music that for all its incredible prodigal creativity, there's a sense that he's kind of finding patterns that are already out there that exist in the world and, and, and rearranging them. Same with his narrative works. Um, I think when you listen to his St. Matthew Passion, the, the con conviction that this story is something like a true story um, informs the music so that it feels different from Handel, let's say, who I'm not sure about Handel's religiosity, but where he's kind of taking the stories that were around in his time and making stuff out of them. There's, there's a more baseline conviction in the rendering of the passions in Bach, I think. So this all then leads me to try to put those two things that I just rather elaborately set out together. If we kind of grant that Bach's music is is somehow religious or is somehow transcendent in a way that even the like oldest deconstructors among us don't try to try to dispute, that somehow corresponds to Bach's own experience of the world as somehow like transcendent and on, on some non-negotiable level. And so for, for those of us who have, and I'm a thoroughly modern person, you know, not, um, not uh, old fashioned in my apprehension of religion at all, I think to the encounter with the music of Bach is like the strongest experience I have of what it must've, what, what the, that kind of believer who really understood the world as kind of created by God and infused with, with the presence of the divine must be like, because I feel that it's something like full power in his music. And I don't find the usual impulse to kind of break it down or take it apart. I'm willing to kind of roll with that. Um, it, it, I know I'm getting a bit vague, but, but that's, but that's, uh, and then I think, just to cap the argument, a lot of my experience of recordings is like this. It's amazing to think that um, Pablo Casals walked into a room on, um, it was November, November 1936, it was in Paris, and 
you know, pulled the hairs of the bow across the strings of his cello in a certain way, and that then we can kind of fire it up and listen to that. There's there, that's we're somehow transcending time and space just in doing that. And then as I point out in the book, the fact that Robert Johnson pulled his fingers across the strings of his guitar in a hotel room in San Antonio on the same day, November 25th, 1936, and did the same time transcending music making through recordings in a totally different idiom, these two men with their wooden instruments in small rooms, and we're still listening to it almost 90 years later, that, that's a kind of transcendence that I think we can understand without the use of religious language. And so I tried to kind of merge all those so that each could illuminate the other. It feels like that might be a, an amazing place to just leave it. <laughs> Paul, I'm so grateful for your time. This was wonderful. My pleasure. Faith in Letters is a production of Fax Animus Studios. Our production assistant is Tess Seabright, fact-checking by Dean Gilbert, and special thanks to Lydia Bradley.